All right, morning. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thanks again for your word. Thanks for this morning. Uh, thanks that we can study your word, and I pray that you would uh, bless this time together this morning, that it would be fruitful, and that we'd transition into worship of you uh, and leave here with hearts like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody want to turn that mic down? I'm pretty far away from it. Testing? Good? Good. Alrighty, so Sunday school again. So a recap of last time. So Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. There is a loss of God's presence and paradise, proper dominion and representation of God. Um, but uh, let me get to my slide here on my computer. But God had mercy on them, and he made a chosen people through Abraham after his covenant with Noah. Oh, really? Oh, that's okay. Is that why it's... Oh, okay, okay. Um, Yeah, so God made his covenant people through Abraham, and he developed them into a great nation, and they were in slavery uh, in Egypt for a while, and then... He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and then they traveled through the wilderness, and they're just about to enter the promised land. And Moses gives this great speech. Uh, it looks like Joshua is about to take leadership now, and uh, it looks like the Abrahamic people are about to start recovering some of the things from Eden. So, oh yeah, this way. So today we're covering the former prophets, so that's Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, and that's going to cover uh, the history of God's people taking the land, settling in the land, uh, creating a monarchy in the land, and learning obedience through discipline, and the reason I have a question mark there is that it actually isn't so clear that they're going to learn obedience by the end of this section of scripture. And if you're wondering why Ruth is missing, because so far everything's just been in order of how our Bibles usually are. Uh, So used to that. This is a picture of the divisions we're using just to kind of help here. So yeah, last time we did the Pentateuch or the law, and that was your first five books of your Bible just as they are. Uh, This is how the Hebrews divide them. It's not exactly how we divide them. We're doing former prophets, and Ruth is actually considered one of the writings. Uh, So we'll do that in a couple weeks. But today we're doing the former prophets. Uh, So this follows uh, the book of Joshua. We're starting with the book of Joshua. Everybody turn to Joshua. So who, what, where, when, and why. So it follows Joshua and the tribes and warriors of Israel as they enter the land. The what, uh, Now they're entering into the land. Uh, Moses has passed off leadership to Joshua. They're claiming the promised land through conquest. Uh, Where? Canaanite land. Uh, It's about to become Israel's land after conquest. And when? This is right after Deuteronomy picking up, Joshua's picking up the mantle. And why? Uh, God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham that his people are going to inherit this land. So in Joshua 1 we see uh, one to five, we can, we can split Joshua into like three big sections. Chapter one to five, they're entering the land. Uh, six to 21, they're conquering and dividing the land among the tribes and uh, dedication of the land. So rededicating themselves to God, dedicating the land to God. Uh, and that's Joshua 22 to 24. Uh, so in Joshua one, we see Joshua assuming command as the new Moses is kind of how the book sets him up here. Uh, And it's, you know, just as Moses obeyed, we see a lot of, or just as we obeyed Moses, we see a lot of 
things here that point to him as the new Moses. Uh, Joshua 2, they send spies into the land, and they eventually cross the Jordan, again setting Joshua up as the new Moses, just like they crossed the Red Sea under Moses. Uh, And then in Joshua chapter 5, they rededicate themselves to God, uh, a renewal of the people, kind of a spiritual renewal, now that they're in the land and about to conquer it, and they're going to have to trust God to conquer the land. A really important theme in the book of Joshua that you'll see play itself out actually throughout the rest of the Old Testament is in chapter 5 they see the angel of the Lord, uh, like the leader of the Lord's armies, and he's asked, are you for us or for our adversaries? So for Israel or for the Canaanites? And the angel of the Lord said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. So God is for God first and foremost, and he's not for Israel Die hard. He's for Israel in so much as Israel is for God. So God is for God first. Uh, so if they obey him, they'll have victory and success. If they don't, they won't. So 6 to 12, we see them conquering the land through a series of uh, battles. Uh, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. Again, that's all dependent on whether or not they trust and obey the Lord. And then 13 to 21, the land is divided among the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, that like, seems like a long, boring list to us, but that actually is very important because every time you see a tribe getting land, that's, you know, that would have been so exciting for a Jew because that's fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise for that land. Um, and then at the end of Joshua 22 to 24, uh, we see the land and the people dedicating themselves to God or the people dedicating themselves and the land to God. An altar of witness is built. Joshua gives a final speech, kind of like Moses gave before they entered the land. Joshua's about to die. He says, you know, heed all of the words in the law. Do them and you'll have success in the land. And they renew the covenant in the land. Uh, A question you'd probably have for the book of Joshua if you read it all. uh, Why would God not just permit but command the merciless slaughter of the Gentiles in the land. So for example, Joshua 6.21, before they take down one area, uh, they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, old and young, ox and sheep, donkeys, they were supposed to destroy everything, children, babies, women, everybody. So is that good? What are you guys' thoughts about that? Is that good that God did that? Is it bad? Is it an Old Testament thing? Is that in line with God's character? Is that something that was okay for God to do, unjust for God to do? What are some thoughts about that? It's necessary for the removal of sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not against God's character. God's character is higher than God. Right. God is allowed. Right. Right, because he owns us. And it's not really like arbitrary conquest of land either it's God's distribution of his land that he owns and created Um, thanks Jason something I think will help us here also is um, does somebody want to read Genesis 15 16 Genesis chapter 15 verse 16 and see if that can help us answer this they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity Right, so God's saying to Abraham, your people are going to inherit this land that you're in, but first they're going to be slaves in Egypt, and then they're going to come back after 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what does that tell us about 
God's justice in destroying, or at least intending to destroy, all of the all of the Canaanites and Amorites. And what are some thoughts there on how that verse helps us? Right, right, yeah, right, because the iniquity of them is not yet complete. It's it's progressively getting worse and worse, right? So it's not like an arbitrary, just destroy these people because they're there and I don't want them to be there. God subjected his own people to slavery just so that these people would have, you know, 400 years to be as wicked as they were going to be under God's sovereignty so that it was just when they were cleared from the land. God could have just cleared them out right then, but because of his justice, he waited for their iniquity to develop to a point where it was justifiable for him to have the Israelites do that. He could have destroyed them at any time because he's the owner of life. But So, yeah, we can read these things and let internet atheists kind of scare us, like, oh, read your Old Testament, there's so many horrible things, but when you really look into it, God is a God of justice still and mercy. Uh, so now we're in the book of Judges, uh, so who, the uh, book of Judges follows Israel, her leaders, and the Gentiles left in the land, and what the horrible downward moral spiral of Israel under mostly wicked leadership, now that they're settled in the land, uh, where the newly inhabited promised land, uh, when, right after Joshua, about 1400 BC, so Joshua gives his closing speech, the book of Judges picks up, Joshua's dead, and now they're going to establish a new form of leadership in the land called Judges, uh, and why? To show that God's people are capable of great evil when they're left to their own devices and forsake his word, and the consequences that follow, and to show his mercy and faithfulness despite the sin of his people. So the book can kind of be structured in three major sections. So reasons for Israel's coming disobedience, one to three kind of brings that out of the of the text. Uh, Israel's repetitive disobedience, so that's most of your book. So chapters four to 16 is just repetition of failure after failure of the leaders over and over. And the total depravity of Israel's condition, that last four chapters there, uh, 17 to 21, kind of shows, it's not even talking about judges anymore necessarily, it just shows how awful the condition of the people are through just a few horrible stories that I probably won't even read, but anyway. So the reasons for their disobedience is they failed to drive out every single Canaanite out of the land, right? So these people are left in the land and they're a stumbling block for Israel to worship their God and their God alone. Uh, They're serving these people's gods. They're falling into these people's traditions and customs. So an incomplete job of driving out the pagans left, yeah, tons of obstacles in their way. And uh, I'm going to read for you guys uh, Judges chapter 2, 11 to 23, because it's basically a summary of the whole book. (laughs) So I think it's worth it to move through Judges well. Judges 2, 11 to 23 here. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods. Uh, And then they forsook, forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Asherahs. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and then he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, uh, the hand of the Lord was against them for the calamity, or for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. That means they were fooling around with God's that they should not have been uh, and not worshiping Yahweh alone and bowed down to them and they turned quickly in the way which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord they did not do so and the Lord raised up judges for them and the Lord was the judge and delivered and the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hands of their enemies uh, all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and harassed them and it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them they did not cease from their doings uh, and from their stubborn way then the anger of the Lord was kindled again against Israel and he said because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice I will also no longer drive out before them the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test the ways of Israel or I will keep I will keep the ways of the Lord uh, to walk with them as their fathers kept them uh, or not Therefore the Lord left the nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them from the hand into the hand of Joshua. So basically it's just a repetitive pattern of get caught up with other nations, they cry out, Lord, help us. The Lord has pity on Israel and helps them out of their situation, raises up another judge for them. Either the judge is wicked or the people don't listen to the judge, uh, and the cycle just keeps repeating. Uh, so Judges 13 to 16 is just this pattern playing out over and over again. They're established as Israel's leaders, both spiritually and militarily, the judges. And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes over and over and over. That's a repeating uh, theme and verse in the book of Judges. Uh, there were some notable judges that you might have heard of growing up Sunday school, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, uh, and they all had their own problems. And then the last section Israel's just total depravity. Uh, corruption even ends up creeping into the priesthood, which is supposed to be the, the spiritual leadership of the land. There's sexual abuse, violence, civil war in Israel. And the book just ends with this really depressing phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right as their, in their own eyes. So the book of Judges kind of sets us up for uh, First and Second Samuel, because it's leaving us with this tension, there's no king, there's no king, there's no king, right? We need a king. Uh, so first and second Samuel, who? Uh, God's prophet Samuel, the first king of Israel, Saul, and Saul's successor, David. Uh, what? The transition of Israel as a group of tribes under judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. So it's just transitioning out of this kind of leadership into a kingdom uh, where the promised land Israel when after judges until David's death, so about 1100 BC to 970 BC and why, First uh, and Second Samuel, it establishes a, a throne over Israel and gives hope and a promise that one day there will be a better king and an eternal kingdom over God's people right now who is Israel. Uh, so Samuel is established as a prophet uh, and then the people ask for a king and then Saul is established by king, uh, as king by Samuel 
and then there's the downfall of Saul and the rise of David. So these are like kind of the main structure points of First Samuel. Uh, and then the main structure points of Second Samuel is after that, David's anointed as king. There's the Davidic covenant, the downfall of David, and an epilogue at the very end kind of contrasting Saul and David. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time in details on this book because I really want to get into Second Samuel chapter 7. But here's a picture that I think is really helpful. Uh, you should go home and watch the Bible Projects video on First and Second Samuel, but this picture is helpful because if you see those two arches there that kind of cross each other, this is kind of the story of after Samuel is established as a prophet, the people ask for a king. Saul becomes the first king, and he's really built up as this great character, and then he kind of starts to have his downfall. And as Saul's having his downfall, David's rising and being built up as a noble man of God who's eventually king, and David has his downfall in 2 Kings. And right in the middle there, Saul and David have a rivalry, and Saul is pursuing David, trying to kill him, and he eventually dies. Uh, But everybody go to 2 Samuel 7, because that's what I really want to focus on here. Does somebody want to read 2 Samuel 7? Uh, yeah, we have time. Does somebody want to read 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17, all the way? 1 to 17. How about we do this? We'll go Jason, Josh, Emily, Carson. Uh, oh, you have no Bible on you? Okay, so Jason, Josh, Emily, then you, then you, and we'll just go down the row and just everybody read a clump of verses. So 2 Samuel 1, or 7, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1, going to verse 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in the tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. At that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and said, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Did you build me a house I have not lived in a house since the day of God, the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in the tent for my life. In all places where I have lived with all the people of Israel, and I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I have commanded to the two shepherds, my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house this year? Now therefore, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should not take sheep and friends or run And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from the earth. And I will make sure you return to you with the grave, in the name of the great God of the earth. I Thank you. 
dragged to the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his movements. Thank you. So, God's promising here to David. David offers to build God a house, a temple, and God says, no, thank you, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty that's going to last forever and ever and ever, and a king from your line who will be my son is going to reign over my people forever and ever and ever, and your enemies won't have dominion over you anymore, and you'll be in the land and prosperous. Uh, so... This is God's grace on full display because he knows everything that Israel's going to do. He knows everything that David's going to do. You know, we know the story of David and Bathsheba. And not to mention, he knows how corrupt Israel's already been. Even if Israel had no more bad actions after this, they, they don't deserve this perfect king, right? But God's doing this to fulfill his covenant with Abraham that he established and he has pledged by himself to fulfill uh, so the covenant's role in salvation. So this establishes a line for the messianic king to come through, and it promises eternal rest for God's people. And it kind of helps us restore to an Edenic state. So uh, a state that's more like the Garden of Eden is kind of what God's progressively getting back to here. Uh, perfect rule and exercise of authority. There's going to be a perfect king who has perfect dominion over a perfect land again. Uh, so that's how this contributes to God's salvation. A uh, question we probably should ask here is, uh, is this king divine or human? Because we all know that ultimately this is Jesus, the son of God. It says, my son, Jesus is the only one who can reign forever because he has eternal life, right? He's the only one who can give that. Uh, but some thoughts we might have here is son of God is just a common term in those days for the king of Israel. Most kings of Israel were just called sons of God. He's David's physical son, and when he commits iniquity, it says in Second Samuel, when he commits iniquity. So did Jesus Christ ever commit iniquity? Well, we know he didn't. So is this about Jesus or not? So is Jesus, is Jesus really God or is there no kingly prophecy about Jesus? What are your guys' thoughts here? Does somebody want to read First Kings 8.20? And I think that'll help us. How the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he may require a vision in the place of David, my father, as the Lord promised. And I built a house for the name of God. Right. So that's Solomon, David's son, talking, and he's saying, I'm fulfilling the promise. So we always think this is about Jesus. So is it about Jesus or is it about Solomon, David's son? Because he clearly says in First Kings that he is the one to fulfill that promise. It's a layered prophecy. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for. So that's really important when you're reading these things and you go, oh, I was so sure that was about Jesus. And then there's something that's like, that's not about Jesus. Almost always, it's a, it's a doubly fulfilled prophecy, right? So it's fulfilled naturally and immediately in Solomon, but really it has a, a greater context beyond that. Uh, 
Jesus won't even commit iniquity, right? So it's kind of fuzzy as far as it goes messianically, but it is ultimately messianic. It is ultimately about Jesus and his eternal throne forever. So how will the following kings live up to this role of ruling Israel righteously? Well, if you want to get depressed, you should read First and Second Kings. And I don't want to get sad, so we're done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I also forgot to mention First and Second Samuel we tackled as one book because originally it actually was one book. It was just so long that uh, when the Greek people wrote their translation of the Bible, they cut it in two. And that's the same for First and Second Kings. So we're going to tackle First and Second Kings as one book as well. So the who uh, mostly follows the kings who rule after David and two prophets who call them back to repentance, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, the what, uh, the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. Eventually there's a split of the nation. We'll get there. Uh, as they spiritually plummet Israel, leading into exile. Uh, where, the kingdom of Israel and Judah, after the kingdom split. When, this is directly after Second Samuel, uh, right up until Israel goes into their first horrible exile. So about 970 B.C. to 585 B.C. So this covers a lot of time. Uh, it's like a a chronicle of these things. Uh, why? Uh, first and second Kings shows that Yahweh is the only true God to be worshipped in Israel and shows the need for a righteous king as Israel is led astray under her current kings. So it really sets us up with this tension of, Lord, you said that this king would be really great and, you know, even Solomon wasn't that great. So what's the deal here? So the book can be divided up or the books can be divided up into uh, about four main sections here. So uh, Solomon's reign. So first Solomon is established as king and then the kingdom splits uh, in 12 to 16. We see the story of that. And then Elijah and Elisha. So at the end of uh, first Kings and like the first portion of second Kings, it focuses on these two main prophets. It's kind of like the center of this whole book because remember they were written as one book calling these people back to repentance, uh, back to the Lord. And then the last section is the downfall of the kingdoms and their captivity into exile. So Solomon's reign. So we see first uh, in first Kings one to three, Solomon is established as king and he actually does build God a temple. So there's the immediate fulfillment of the promise to David that his son, the king, the son of God and the son of David uh, would build God a house. So this is the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. And there's like four chapters, four or five chapters describing the interior and the decoration of this temple. And there's a lot of Eden imagery. So it's supposed to make you think, if you read those long, boring chapters, man, there's a lot of things in here that remind me of the Garden of Eden. This is the restoration of God's presence with his people. Uh, so Solomon reigns for a while. And wise king asked God for wisdom. He wrote Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, things like that. But he has a really sad ending. So in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, I think 17, there's a list of requirements for kings. And systematically, Solomon actually disobeys every single one of them. He has tons and tons of hundreds of wives and concubines. Uh, he breaks virtually every rule in the Torah, like I said. Uh, he has a lot of Philistine wives because, remember, they left these people in the land. Philistines, Jebusites, all, all sorts of Canaanites. And these are a stumbling block even to the king of Israel and eventually he ends up instituting the worship of their gods and allowing that. So even though Solomon has a promising start, he has a really sad end, meaning he can't be the full fulfillment of this messianic king 
uh, promised in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, and then in, uh, in the next few chapters, there's a conflict of interest. So Solomon's son, uh, he's a wicked leader, like a really wicked leader, uh, institutes slave labor, things like that. He actually ends up looking more like Pharaoh than he does looking like David by the end of his kingship. And the northern 10 tribes reject this. They say, no, we don't want anything to do with this wicked leadership. So we're going to establish our own kingdom in the north, us 10 tribes, and you two tribes in the south, you do your own thing. So this is where Israel splits. Now the northern kingdom is Israel and the southern kingdom is Judah. So if you see Israel and Judah for the remainder of your Bible, it is referring to two separate kingdoms in one promised land. And then, like I said, the end of 1 Kings and the start of 2 Kings kind of centers on Elijah and Elisha, and they're supposed to call God's people to repentance. Uh, they're, giving, they're given really amazing authority and power from Yahweh. They call fire down from heaven. They command droughts. They raise people from the dead, all sorts of amazing things. And this is to show that Yahweh is the only true God through the signs and the wonders, tests, judgments on the people, and still, Israel just doesn't get it. They have all of these miracles. They have a test where, obviously, the false god Baal is shown to be a false god because he can't even call fire down from heaven, not even a flame. But Yahweh has this huge pillar of fire come down from heaven. And uh, actually, the prophets mock the people and say, you know, where's your god? Is he on the toilet or something like that? That's the New Living Translation. But anyway, uh, then moving on from there, we have... Uh, so the next huge section is just bouncing back and forth between the northern and southern kingdom now, Israel and Judah. Just really wicked leadership. Uh, Israel is just destroyed and taken captive by Assyria. Remember, so that's the first, that's the northern kingdom. And their leadership just gets horrible and horrible and horrible. And eventually this foreign nation, Assyria, comes in and just wipes them out and takes them into exile. So they're not in their promised land anymore. They're not ruling over it for sure. They're oppressed. Uh, and then this last little section, 18 to 23 of Second Kings, it shows you the downfall of the southern kingdom too. There's actually a couple good kings mixed in there, but this last section, it's like good king, bad king, good king. So it's actually sandwiched by two good kings at the very end here, but still like even that's not enough. Israel's just too far gone. And even though a couple of the last kings have good intentions, it's just not enough. Israel's so wicked uh, that God decides to judge them anyway. So they're destroyed and taken captive into Babylon uh, in 24 and 25. And again, by a foreign nation, not in their land anymore. So it kind of, this is just how the book ends. It's like, is God done with his people? They're not in the land anymore. We just had this huge buildup brought out of Egypt, you know, across the Jordan, supernatural uh, victories over the people. God brought them into this land, established a kingship, gave like really optimistic promises for a king to come. And then he just sends them back out of the land, oppresses them again, uh, puts them under the foot of their enemy again, just like they were in Egypt. Uh, and now all the tribes are scattered. They're in exile. They're not a unified people anymore. So it's like God just undid everything that he had already accomplished. Uh, but does somebody want to read 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30? 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 to 30. This is, this is after the people are in exile and being oppressed by their captors. Here's a little story of what happens then.
Right, so it's kind of like just this hopeful little story at the end. Um, it's nothing sure, but while God's people are in exile and under captivity, the ruler of this wicked foreign nation just all of a sudden, you know, inspired by God, just starts treating one of Israel's people very kindly. So the book kind of just ends with this tension of, you know, the people aren't in the land anymore. Things are going horribly, but there's this little glimmer of hope. Otherwise, why would the book just end with a story of kindness shown towards God's people, right? And that kind of sets us up with attention uh, for where the story will go from here. And yeah, that's, that is the former prophets today. So next time, if I can go back to uh, my first slide here, real quick here. Here we go. So today we covered the former prophets. Next time we're going to cover the latter prophets. So that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the big three. And then the 12 there. Uh, That's not the apostles. That just means 12 minor prophets, just a long list of them. Uh, And then after that, the final week, we're going to cover the writings. So that's a lot of poetry books. And then just the things that aren't poetry in there are either just short stories within what we've already covered to show something about God or something about his people or his faithfulness, or they're kind of recaps of what we just covered. So for example, First and Second Chronicles is basically a recap of Kings uh, and Samuel that paints things in a different light. So those are the divisions and how we're covering them. So that is, that's everything I have for today. Uh, we still have time if there's any questions or anything like that, but I'm kind of glad to end five minutes early this time. (laughs) I was actually thinking about splitting you guys off into groups again, but I was like, no way I'll have time for that looking at my slide count, but I guess I should have done it. Is there any questions? Anybody has any comments, anything they noticed while we were going through this in the development of God's story? Right. That's a great question, Chris. So, yeah, Chris is right. I mean, certainly the Hebrews considered that these books were historically accurate and actually happened. I mean, I'm sure their great, great, great grandparents were telling them, I was there when, I mean, if they were still alive, they probably weren't alive. But anyway, the reason they consider this prophecy is because these stories, even though they really happened, they stand as a testament to what happens when we don't obey God, right? These books on their own are a prophecy to the people. And what that means is lots of times in the West and in the modern world, we think prophecy like fortune tellers, like prophecy is when I get a revelation from God and I tell you what's gonna happen or speak something over the future of your life or something like that. That's definitely a, a part of prophecy, but that's actually just a subset of prophecy. That's not necessarily the main goal of prophecy. The, the main meat of prophecy is God speaking to his people And usually it's God speaking a word of rebuke to his people, right? Or a word of hope, but it's just, it's what God wants to tell his people presently, right? Whether it's against them or for them. And so the prophets in first and second um, Kings, for example, Elijah and Elisha, they didn't make, 
I can't think of any, but if they did, not very many prophecies about the future, right? But they were still called prophets, and that's because right then, under God's authority, with God's words, they were rebuking Israel and speaking the words of God to Israel. So prophecy was actually mainly considered calling God's people back to repentance, right? Calling God's people to a higher standard of holiness and purity. And so that's why they consider these guys prophets. Again, like, really important to remember, these stories would have stood as testaments, right? So eventually when Israel gets back into the land, or at least gets some sort of organization back to their people, they're going to read these books, and, you know, if they have common sense, they're going to let these books stand prophetically, meaning they're going to read them and go, this is what happened when we didn't obey? That, that's a prophecy. That's a prophetic pattern. So we need to obey. Any questions about that? Is that clear? Make sense? Wonderful. Any other questions? <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> who was the fourth judge? I don't know, Josh. Who was he? <laughs> You've been preaching through judges. Not my problem. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, going once for questions, going twice, sold. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll wrap up here. Father, thanks again for your word. Uh, Thanks for all of the patterns in your word, Lord, just obvious paths that you've left us to show us how everything fits into the whole, how everything is actually doing something for your people, how we can read these stories and go, this is how God saved me. They're not just isolated stories. Uh, They have value for us today. I thank you for how you have worked in history. I just pray that we don't consider these as stories. It's really easy to say that we believe them as history and then not actually really believe, man, God did these things uh, some time ago. So I thank you that you've done these things. I thank you that you're still powerful to call your people back into repentance. And I thank you that you have set a perfect king over us, King Jesus who doesn't even need a rod of rebuke. Um, I just pray that this morning we would go into the worship of him and that you'd be gracious to us and give us hearts to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.